Hello, everyone. Welcome to the AMT Tech Trends podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. I am Benjamin Mose, the Director of Technology for AMT, and I'm here with... Stephen Lamarca, AMT's Technology Analyst. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Are you melting like a snowman because it is a thousand degrees and it's only spring? <laughs> you know, it is a bit warm today, and I feel like it came out of nowhere. It's yeah. not hot, right? but it's, sudden it's change. like... It's, it's really like... I'm almost as confused as my central air system <laughs> because it's on right now yeah. and we have our AC set to 68 degrees, <laughs> but we also have the door open and the AC's like, it, 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 it hasn't turned on. I mean, so we're like, we're, we're, I'm comfortable right now. Right. But when I go outside to walk Charlie, it's like, this is nice. And it's a little warm. And then like you get into the shade and then like the wind blows right. and it's like, okay, now it's chilly. <laughs> it's, it's so confusing right now. I'm, I'm happy with it. Yeah, that's good. I, I do enjoy the change. Uh, I wasn't expecting an abrupt change because it was chilly for a couple of days and then spiked. And then I uh, skated down the street, my skateboard uh, to get pick up Amelia and I was sweating how, all of a sudden. <laughs> how cold was it up here uh, last week? Uh, there was a uh, freeze warning overnight once. Wow. And my sprinkles went off in the morning, and it turned into ice just after that. No so, way. That's <laughs> I, incredible. I think I broke something in my sprinkler system, but I'm not going to check. So so last week, as you know, I went down to uh, North Carolina for my best friend's wedding. And no joke, I didn't think to check the weather before yep. heading down there because I figured, okay, you know, it's nice springtime weather up here sure. uh, in northern Virginia right outside D.C., you know, but I'm going down to the deep, dirty south where it's probably <laughs> going to be Nashville hot everywhere yeah. and not just the chicken. And <laughs> we get down there. I think um, we stopped for gas in southern Virginia, like right, right outside North Carolina, actually right outside uh, Tennessee. We took 81 right. and and it was so cold out. It was like in the low 40s. And I was like, what is going on? We not only we stopped for gas, not because we needed gas immediately, because the temperature dropped so much that uh, it affected the tire pressures and the tire light popped on. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a fun road it's, trip. Yeah. How crazy is that? Speaking of cars, you know, uh, one continuing item we've been talking about is the digital twin. And yeah. you've got some updates on sim racing. Yeah, a lot, a lot of sim video games, yep. which are now less of video games and more legit classified as digital twin, yep. which is great for both digital twin and for these video games that are trying to establish themselves. So let's start with Gran Turismo. I've mentioned Gran Turismo before. Gran Turismo is recognized by the FIA, which is... Um, a French acronym, but they're the international regulatory body for auto auto racing. Right. And the FIA has recognized this PlayStation game as if you're good enough at this game, you can have your international raced car driver's license. That's cool. It, it's, it's that wild. And it's, you know, this is old news. Sure. Like they, they've actually taken polyphony digital. Who's the manufacturer of, or, or the producer of this video game has taken some of their top drivers in the game mm -hmm. and actually like, you know, uh, they've been so good. I think it's like their top 10 drivers. Uh, they've flown these people out to like France or Japan, wherever to 
um, get actually get them some wheat behind the wheel time and actual race cars. Right. And no joke, some of these some of these boys and girls are talented enough that they put them in actual race cars and sent them to actual racing events. Uh, the past few 24 hours of Le Mans have actually had Gran Turismo veterans That's behind cool. the wheel in actual race cars. So it's it's not only a proof of concept for the digital twin, but it's also showing that holy cow, Gran Turismo is in fact a legit training <laughs> tool. It's, it, it does not replace actual like seat and track time sure. in a v- real vehicle because as I can tell you from the bachelor party that I went to <laughs> that uh, you know just because you know what the right driver's line is and you know the feel for cars and go-karts and stuff like that does not mean that your big dumb fat body that's used to sitting down in a comfy chair all day can handle the g-forces and uh, and, and you even can remember to breathe properly you know yeah. when behind the wheel but not only that, so, oh my God, before I shift from Gran Turismo, I got to mention yes. the big update with it is sim racing is an eSport and this eSport, Gran Turismo as an eSport will be in the upcoming Olympics. That's impressive. That's It's going to be a, 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 a Olympic event, <laughs> Gran Turismo iRacing. <laughs> That's it's, fascinating. It's, it's, it's wild. I might watch but, the Olympics for that. Yeah, <laughs> but but the other cool thing is this other um, uh, video game simulation that I've mentioned in previous podcasts, DCS Digital Combat Simulator, which takes military aircraft and um, it's a simulation of military aircraft, and you can do you know bombing runs and actual fly actual you know digital twin missions in and almost any plane you want that they can get an accurate simulation of. Um, and I say that because um, planes like the F-22 and the F-35, uh, A, B, and C are still, the, the, all three, those four planes are still classified by the U.S. or, or top secret. I forget what it is. So sure. we don't have all the deets on how to actually fly those. But what's really cool is through all of these um YouTubers and Twitch streamers that are really hardcore into Milsim games um, have been like flocking to DCS because it is so hardcore and real um, that a lot of these guys by no means are capable of taking down actual pilots. There's some really great videos of them going up against real pilots. And as soon as a real fighter pilot gets a grasp for the, for the game they're an absolute weapon and can't be stopped it's, <laughs> it's actually hilarious that's good to know but a lot of these gamers are finding exploits mm-hmm. through this game that you know military units didn't know about right. that they like they could do so a lot of countries actually have uh implemented what we have here in the u.s which is the eisenhower interstate system sure. which is for however many so miles of highway you have, you need to have one mile or so of perfectly straight, flat, level highway. And that was done during Eisenhower's time as president um, because, you know, if the U.S. is ever under attack, we want to be able to turn some of our interstates into a makeshift uh, runway landing strip for military aircraft, which is a really cool concept. And it seems outdated now, but 
now that you know it's been exploited in DCS, um, a lot of pl- some players have found out that you know if you are in mid flight or mid combat and nobody's around you, no enemies are around you, right. and you know the AWACS doesn't have their eyes on you, um, you can go totally radar invisible by putting your landing gear down coming to a complete stop and landing on a highway (laughs) and just watching for enemy aircraft and as soon as they're close enough because you're on the ground and you're not coming up um you can you know fly up you know fox to them (laughs) and then come back to a landing and nobody will know what happened it's fascinating it's wild and it's uh but there's other cool um concepts like redshift and uh, well with radars um that that i've learned about watching some of these gamers play and so so an aircraft radar um can detect uh, an, an other aircraft if the aircraft is moving away in which the blip comes up as red yep. or the aircraft is moving towards the aircraft with radar, uh, which then the blip would come up as blue. But if you are moving at a perfectly con- constant uh, distance from that aircraft with the radar, like either at the same speed or making a perfect circle around the aircraft with the radar activated, right. you'll come up as green cool. and thus you'll come up as a landscape and uh, they won't even see you there. That's, that's one tactic yeah. of showing up as uh, invisible. And th- this is, again, this is, this isn't just some video game. This is like digital <laughs> twin stuff right here. Well, it is just a video game, but it, the, the ability to, you know, apply this to like real life scenarios is fascinating, right? So you've got uh, a game that's going to be using as an e- uh, Olympic sport is yeah. truly uh, a change to where, you know, we are 10 years ago even, right? And then yeah. the ability to create this entire world and say, hey, world, find out potential exploits and flaws that I can now fix in the future, right? So it's not just, yeah. you know, granted, it is a video game, right? And But right. there are applications where people are learning a lot from this environment. Yeah. And, and I, I think there's going to be some of these exploits that these, these gamer nerds <laughs> like us have, have found in some of these games that will end up being, you know, in the next few years being taught in like, you know, military top gun programs. And the idea of uh, the, the, uh, you know, Gran Turismo using as a, a starting point, for people in, that want to get in their racing career, it's very fascinating because it, the learning curve, like you mentioned, learning curve for physical racing, like being in a in a car seat, it's it's very high. The risks are very high, right? You're pushing the risks your, are stupid high. You're pushing yeah. a car to the limits. You know, your physical damage, you have yourself. But if you're able to cut a lot of that initial learning curve out with digitally, that gets you so much closer to a better end state quicker. And I, I find that very fascinating. Yeah. In regardless, if if you're uh, you could be the safest driver ever in an actual car, it's still going to put a lot of damage on your pocketbook. And (laughs) sim racing is a lot cheaper. It's funny because one of my buddy uh, did uh, motorcycle racing, and he said, uh, uh, "Don't bring anything to the racetrack that you plan on driving home." (laughs) So, just don't expect a good day at a racetrack if you're uh, planning a, a. race weekend so uh some of the articles we uh harvested some really good ones today so you got one on the photonics and you know potentially with the way we are with the silicone shortages could be some interesting news in the next couple of years oh man yeah there's so so this article that i found on photonics media um just got me thinking 
that um, so the title of the article is integrated photonic circuits demonstrate ultra low loss. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about the article talks about uh, silicon in the use of being used in photonics and how it, it does lightly glance on, you know, the silicon shortage, but it talks about that, you know, before there was a silicon shortage, silicon was pretty abundant and, you know, there was really no reason to look elsewhere. Um, but now that a lot of, you know, these schools of thought and these concepts, uh, especially something like photonics or even, you know, uh, chip and die production for mm -hmm. uh, microprocessors, uh, now that there is a silicon shortage, there's actually a reason to look at other materials. And this article talks about just the reason why, um, you know, looking well, the the fact that they're looking at other materials, like instead of just pure silicon, now they're looking at stuff like silicon nitride. Uh, they're finding that, oh man, there are actually a lot of flaws with silicon that can be overcome if we look at other materials. And now that there's actually a reason, the shortage to look at materials other than silicon, um, they're finding that other than the shortage, there are some benefits to changing materials. Awesome. So it's, it's, I, I think we've got a wild few years ahead of us. And I think the silicon chip might be going through some death throes in the next <laughs> few years as, as we shift materials, which would be cool. It'd, it'd be yeah. kind of a, a bummer in some ways that means we're going to have to invest in new technology, but you know, that's computers for you. <laughs> You're outdated as soon as you take it home. Yeah. And that is interesting that you bring that up because uh, the U S is investing in silicone manufacturing, or to be honest, like uh, semicon manufacturing. So, you know, if there is a shift in materials that could, you know, drive a potential independence to uh, foreign supplied goods, which is something um, I think the U.S. is interested in investing in. So, yeah, that's very fascinating, and I'm definitely interested in a change. And I think computer hardware uh, in general um, is going through a paradigm shift as they continue increase decreasing um, die sizes. You know, mm -hmm. the CPU nomenclature could change because they're getting so small, um, and, you know, RAM's increasing speed, and uh, it, it's a fascinating evolution oh man ram is getting stupid fast yep i got an article on uh, metrology so the actual title of the article from um uh, sme uh, is uh where to go uh, scanners measure up measuring up scanners measure up uh, okay uh i mean manufacturing puns man they they hurt me and make me giggle at the same time i mean I feel bad, but you know, I love writing them for the tech report. <laughs> yeah. I get in trouble sometimes for them because it's so easy to do a double entendre, but I love them. It's tough. I agree. Um, <laughs> but this one talks about the developments of uh, non-contact uh, scanners uh, used on the manufacturing floor. And I find it fairly fascinating because it's, it's used on a multiple uh, broad spectrum of use cases. You know, you have lasers and the structured lights. Um, but yeah, the article goes over a couple of uh, uh, scenarios or uh, uh, categories. One is, where we are compared to like five years ago. And the article talks about uh, the technology advancements, uh, where we are today in both uh, collecting data and being able to process the data and implement new technologies. And the evolution over the past five years has been so fast in this pace that, um, you know, the uh, current set of um, uh, scanners are exceeding the requirements of the customer. 
in, in a lot of cases. Uh, so that, and that's where you know you were a couple of years ago, where you know to fully meet what the customer is asking for, it was fairly difficult. Um, but and uh, and the article talks about um, you know off the shelf scanners are um, uh, meet uh, meet or exceed the customer requirements in a majority of use cases. Uh, and they also talk about the future of um, uh, non-contact scanners. Um, and there's a couple of use cases where they they actually see it in line with manufacturing as opposed to post-manufacturing. So doing almost in-situation oh, yeah. manufacturing. So similar to the idea of putting a probe in a CNC. So you can measure, mm-hmm. you machine the part, then you can probably measure it if you can, uh, if it's a clean environment. Um, this one, the article talks about... Um, you know, as a operator is installing a part, potentially measuring or inspecting the part post that operation or potentially in real time. Um, I, I think this is a big deal for uh, metrology because, yeah. you know, the, the few people that have reached out to me to to talk more in the tech report and whatnot about metrology have all been like, you know, metrology's made a bunch of you know, advancements in, in, you know, in search of like the almighty micron and stuff like that, but it never gets any, it never gets any publicity just because metrology is not as sexy as the other uh, manufacturing technologies. And I, I a hundred percent agree. And it's not just because of what all of these people have told me, but one thing that is sexy in manufacturing is closed loop. Yeah. And I love the fact that one of the ways to make closed loop production of anything a possibility is having integrated metrology right why take a part out of the machine that is making it to have it scanned in between processes in between uh, uh, pro- uh programs and processes uh when you know you could just introduce the metrology technology mm-hmm. into the machine that's making it and just you know it, there, there's no reason it i it just it closed the loop and metrology are working together to, you know, hype each other up. Yeah, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun time. And, you know, the idea of airproofing gets extended even further, especially on assembly lines. And you talk about uh, assembly processes where if you do the inspection or check as the operator is putting on, putting on the tool, right, you can only do so much hardware wise for the operator. But the uh, system can also tell you, hey, this thing is incorrect. Fix it quickly before it goes on the next step. Uh, so I find that fairly fascinating. Um, to your point about um, you know closed loop manufacturing, there, I think for majority of manufacturing subtractive manufacturing processes, I think it's applicable. But when you get into some of the nuanced manufacturing where heat, you have to be concerned about heat and the straining of the part. Um, mm-hmm. So we've done a fair amount of manufacturing in the past where you are generating tons of heat and it actually doesn't dissipate from the part itself until it's removed and it's settled into the ambient temperature. Um, Especially for large parts where, you know, if you're measuring um, within a thousandth of an inch of a 14-inch diameter part, the, it doesn't take much heat to affect that diameter. Uh, so there's cases like that. And we get into flexible and, you know, uh, parts where you could uh, elastically deform it with subtle pressure. You know, you have to measure the parts in the unrestrained condition. There's actually requirements from the customer to say, don't touch the part as you're measuring it. Otherwise, yeah. you're going to screw it up. And I, I, I totally get that, but if, you know, our friend Lu Zhang of Machine <laughs> Metrics, if he was here right now, like, he'd probably be like, well, that just means you don't know the right equations to, you sure, don't know the right sure. physics equations to compensate yeah. for the temperature differences. Yeah. 
Sure. Yeah. You shouldn't measure a hot part. You should right. measure it while it's cold, yep. but yep. that's only because you don't know the math. The other uh, category or the other uh, thing that or the f- article ends with the um, where they're headed in the future. Uh, we just mentioned integration into the assembly line, but also making scanners easier yeah. to use um, is a, oh, another yeah. top, top priority for uh, the metrology companies. It's, it's similar to like robotics evolution on user interfaces and uh, physically uh programming a robot where the human to machine interface HMI uh, is has to evolve to the point where it's a little more intuitive and where does that intuition come from a lot of consumer goods and yeah. you know, just walking around and living everyday life and uh, they, they fully acknowledge that they have some ways to go and I thought that was a very um, the next the next big technology to hit your smartphone will be 3d scanning I hope so uh, I promise it and I, I do have a bullet here that, uh, you know, when you're dealing with non-contact elements uh, or non-contact processes, uh, the issue of multi-materials comes up. So if I've got a big assembly with different types of materials, since I'm using light or structure lighted lasers, that could affect your uh, processing for uh, measuring. So that's another uh, area of uh, uh, advancement for the future. So that was a fairly fascinating article. Um, thanks, SME. Steve, you've got a uh, a section on denatured alcohol and yeah. environments, man, is driving changes in uh, uh, manufacturing so, processes and technologies. So this like article, no joke, is it, it's really old because the discussion and the topic came up this morning uh, during our company's all staff. Yep, and I, I forget what the exact topic was that came up. I think they were talking about, um, there's an EPA um, regulation where they're looking at about 62,000 materials and trying to understand who in the industry is using that and what's the impact to the environment. And they're considering banning or basically allowing exceptions or banning materials and sets of 30. Yes. Okay. That is, that's, that's right. That's what it was. And I saw that one of our colleagues commented, um, you know, could this, this be in relation to uh, California's recent ban on denatured alcohol? And I didn't know this was a thing. I mean, then again, you know, who am I? <laughs> why should I know? I'm not a citizen of the, you know, the Republic of California. <laughs> and um, I looked into it. Well, first off, before I even looked into it, I thought, wait a minute, how can they even ban denatured alcohol? Do they realize like, that denatured alcohol is like like one of the if not the primary ingredient in deodorant like as if that state doesn't literally stink enough already that's some they're, parts. they're now banning uh deodorant no you know i wanted to keep that out of the all staff because i know we've got uh, some california residents over there which may or may not agree with that <laughs> comment but uh um regardless did a little bit more digging and, you know, the colleague who I asked about it, who brought it up, uh, even clarified that um, it's first off this, that, that legislature is old that came out in denatured alcohol has been banned in California that went effective January 1st, 2019. So yep. this is old news um, that I'm only just hearing about. Um, but uh, it does not apply well, you know, the good news is it does not apply to deodorant at all because uh, um, deodorant or denatured alcohol in deodorant is a ingredient mm-hmm. and not, um, you know, the primary thing that you're shipping. So basically what the legislature says is that 
you cannot produce denatured alcohol, pure denatured alcohol in California, and you cannot ship denatured alcohol by itself as an individual item uh, to California. Hmm. It can still be, you know, shipped to California as an ingredient in deodorant. So, sure. you know, of course, people can still go buy their old spice in California. <laughs> but uh, it's it, it really is a, a blow to, you know, the makerspace in California sure. and just overall manufacturers in California. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I do find yeah. it interesting, you know, I, I was uh, in aerospace when they had issues with cadmium. Uh, cadmium plated parts that was used extensively in aerospace. and Cadmium? Yeah. And it slowly okay. was uh, uh, phased out, but there was still some legacy parts, right? How do you handle um, yeah. that process? And I do find it interesting that, you know, we're at a point where uh, the impacts to the environment is changing, you know, our manufacturing way of yeah. life. You know, I feel like that. You know the the EPA rule we're looking at could um, you know affect wire harnesses could affect uh, you know core components within a machine tool, yeah, and that's going to drive changes upstream and downstream of that. So uh, it's fascinating that you know uh, the manu- even still though you know I, I you mentioned cadmium and you know I worked with cadmium in the lab mm-hmm. in, in my undergrad and cadmium is an alpha emitter and yeah. it's a really nasty yep. alpha emitter at that and you know we had to take an entire uh, semester long class on the dangers of radiation poisoning mm-hmm. because we would be working with stuff like cadmium so I wouldn't really classify cadmium on the same level as denatured alcohol, which, sure. you know, we put in our armpits, but, uh, yeah, cadmium's, come on, Ben, cadmium's more on the level of like asbestos and that's <laughs> yeah, not around yeah. anymore for good reasons. Yeah. So, I mean, my message is that, you know, our, uh, pace of understanding materials was slow back when I was a wee little engineer, uh, <laughs> at 2021, we're in 21, right? 2021. Yeah. Uh, our pace as significantly of understanding materials and the impact to the environment has grown as accelerated and the manufacturing industry had has to stay current to these impacts and assume is constant change. That's my big takeaway is that they could be working with the material now that could be easily phased out in a year or so. For sure. Additive heat sinks, man. I was reading an article from 3d print. And nice transition. <laughs> they were talking about um, growing heat sinks uh, for a lot of different applications, but obviously uh, electronics is your main user of this. Uh, uh, computers or industrial uh, computers, servers, whatever. Um, and the idea behind this was uh, a couple of folds is, uh, you know, uh, the main driver in the article and they kick it off was, you know, increased power densities in electronics. That's, that's, that's growing, right? That's, yeah. we talked about um, silicone shortage earlier and where we are in advancing electronics. That's only going to grow. Your, your power density is going to grow and the ability to remove that heat is becoming more and more vital. Uh, so, you know, 10 years from now, heat sinks is going to be more efficient, going to be more, uh, going to look crazy, look crazy because of They're the primate. They're not even going to look yeah. like heat sinks. Exactly. And yeah. this article from uh, 3d print goes over, uh, a couple of interesting use cases where, you know, they do some FDM uh, heat sinks, which I find fascinating. So not only changing, you know, using the power of additive for unique geometry, you know, the yeah. article talks about you, uh, 
using lattices to increase your surface area to draw more heat away. But also, you know, to try some unique materials, do some crazy stuff with the composites at the heat sink. So I thought, you know, very, very fascinating look at, you know, we're at a point where we probably could change the paradigm of heat sinks in the next five years or so. Um, you know, they go and they go over some really interesting um, concepts. So uh, they did an experiment where using lattice geometries increased the performance by 21%, you know, mm-hmm. doubling life expectancy of 50%. Um, and then, you know, decrease the operational costs by that about too. So the benefits are many, many fold of getting to these very, very unique uh, heat sinks. That's, that's really wild. I didn't think about, uh, you know, additive heat sinks are not a new concept to me. I was introduced to those, you know, years ago, probably at Spacecom, where I actually got to hold one in, in my hand. That's uh, cool. But uh, um, what's wild is I just, real, you know, realize now, you mentioning that, that uh, um, first off, brake rotors. Brake rotors are like a kinetic heat sink. Right. The, their main process or purpose is not a heat sink, or at least we don't think of them as that, but they are brake rotors in automobiles and, or any vehicle for that matter are, are in fact a heat sink because they are converting uh, kinetic energy into thermal energy and they right. got to dissipate that thermal energy effectively uh, to maintain their own effectiveness. Um, or, well, rather coefficients of friction. But, uh, you know, in Formula One, go, go, of course, we're going back to auto racing again. I apologize. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, brake rotors have been, certainly in Formula One, have been made out of carbon and mm-hmm. carbon ceramic has been the trickle down into uh, consumer, uh, the consumer industry. But um, one of the cool things was that I was really excited uh, a couple MFGs ago. Um, I got to meet somebody who's was specifically in the manufacturing industry or their, their shops uh, primary role is doing micro deep hole drilling, yeah. which is huge in formula one, because right. that's how they drill all of the holes in formula one brake rotors, mm-hmm. you know, where you look at a, a brake rotor that we have on our cars and you look at the veins uh, drilled in some cases in our breaker, there's one line of them. Right. As for if you pick queue up a picture on Google of a formula one brake rotor, there's a whole bunch of different rows right. of very small holes drilled into the brake rotor to dissipate heat because it is in fact uh, a heat sink where the purpose is, you know, the more surface area you have, the more heat you can dissipate. Right. Um, and it just, it, it's crazy. I never thought, what if somebody, uh, additively produced a brake rotor. Yeah. Then instead of drilling micro holes and spending a lot, a ton <laughs> of money on micro deep hole drill bits, you just print the darn thing. Sure. And then it, it's got to be cheaper. I mean, still yeah. it's an expensive material and you don't need to worry about surface finish because you're going to be grinding it down <laughs> anyway with pads. Yeah. Or the other way to look at it is transition those uh, high-end technologies to more consumer grade uh, I, I, I gotta look into this I wonder if I wonder if your rotors in like Formula One and in in the world endurance championship are additively produced they have to be at least within the next year if they're not already why don't you report back next year I will find that out for us <laughs> that's crazy we had a lot of key, uh, key things that we like Steve cars computers digital twins 
denatured yeah. alcohol. I love me deodorant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the beauty of all of these things is that it comes back to the manufacturing industry. Absolutely. It's the core of the world, man. Makes the world turn. That's right. All right. Where can they find more info about us? amtonline.org. And uh, because I haven't been there since the last time we recorded a podcast, I don't remember what the exact uh, link is where we go. But if you go to amtonline.org, uh, you can find where to subscribe for us pretty easily because our website's been redesigned and it's absolutely beautiful, stunning, and easy to navigate now. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. That was a great episode. You're very welcome, Ben. Thank you so much. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.